you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it, it, as it is in heaven, give us today our daily bread and forgive our debts. We also, we, as we also have forgiven our de- debtors. And leave us not to tempt, into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Thank you so much, Lumen. And uh, good morning, friends. I want to start today with three true stories. So here's the first one. Uh, There's a guy named Dutch Sheets who wrote a book on prayer, and he told the story of being asked to visit a sick stranger in a nursing home in order to pray for her. Now, he at the time is a pastor in Colorado. He has no information on the woman he's going to pray for whatsoever, except that she's the sister of someone who's within his congregation, and she has has pleaded with him that he would go to this nursing home to pray for her. He walks into her room, and this woman is fully comatose, has a breathing tube down her throat and a feeding tube in her stomach that's keeping her alive. And he finds out from the staff there that she has been in that state for over a year. There are doctors who are simply waiting on the family's permission to pull the plug. Uh, There's no medical reason to believe that she will regain consciousness. And if by some sort of miracle she did, they're certain that she would be nothing more than a vegetable because of all the brain damage she's incurred through the comatose state. So he prays for this woman who in all likelihood is not listening and he was so moved in compassion for her as he prayed that he secretly made this a weekly discipline in his life and just kept coming back to that room to pray for this woman for an hour every week and then approximately a year later or 52 visits later, she woke up. And she woke up with no trace of brain damage after two years in a coma. It was written up in the city's newspaper under an article titled, Woman Awake, Alive, Healthy, After Two Years in a Coma. And the doctors that cared for her are quoted in that very article, calling it a medical miracle and saying, we have no explanation. Here's the next story. Uh, There was a woman named Monica. She was a single mom with one son. She grew up as a devout believer. She sang hymns and prayed over her baby nightly. He grew up to see the world quite a bit differently than his mom did. He became known in their city for public drunkenness and as a womanizer. He was incredibly intelligent and became a professor of philosophy and used all of his intellect to philosophically combat the faith that he despised that his mother carried. Monica didn't give up. She just kept on praying for her son. When he was 19 years old, she had a dream at night in which she believed God was promising her that he heard her and would answer her prayers for her son. Nine years passed after she had that dream, and she grew more intense in prayer, more intense in prayer, but year after year, she saw no change. Then at the nine-year mark, her son was alone in a garden on an otherwise ordinary afternoon, heard the voice of God, opened the scriptures he had spent his life combating and came to faith in Jesus alone in that garden. His name is St. Augustine, and he's arguably the most famous theologian in the history of the Christian faith. One more. Uh, Myongsong Presbyterian Church in Seoul, Korea, started a prayer meeting uh, in the morning approximately 20 years ago with about 40 people. 
Today, if you visit that very prayer meeting, there are 12,000 people that gather to pray every morning in one of the world's global cities. That prayer meeting, because of the capacities, had to be split into three prayer meetings. They're at 4 a.m., 5 a.m., and 6 a.m. Yes, 6 a.m. is the late comers prayer meeting. They have to close and lock the doors of their church on the hour because the capacity at every one of those prayer rooms is standing room only. Meaning, if you get there at 4.01 a.m., you are waiting in the cold, dark, early morning for an hour for the next prayer meeting to come around just to get in to pray. Now, I'm telling you those stories to just point out that prayer is a compelling wonder. God acting on earth in response to conversation with a single human being. How could that be? How could there be a God that powerful and yet that personal? It's better than we dare to imagine most of the time. Walter Wink said this, the message is clear. History belongs to the intercessors who believe the future into being. And prayer is a confounding mystery. Because half the room is motivated by those three stories and the other half is confused or potentially even angered by them. Like, hey man, that's great that that comatose woman was healed, but why some and not others? And if we're gonna insist on celebrating divine action, then can someone please explain divine silence? Or I'm truly happy for Augustine and his mom, but what took God so long? I mean, why wait decades to answer a prayer, then answer it? Is there some kind of divine code that actually gets God's attention and she finally cracked the heavenly safe? Or is God just unmotivated most of the time and eventually she caught him at the right moment? And in what other context does withholding divine power for 19 plus nine years make sense? Doesn't that story speak more to the cruelty of a God who has the power to act but carries that action out slowly and apathetically than it does to the kindness of a God who's eager to act in response to our prayer? Well, I guess that's good that the Koreans are doing all that praying before the sun comes up, but what's come of it? I mean, can you show me any real metrics that anything is happening because they're doing all that prayer other than the the health benefits of early morning meditation and good old-fashioned camaraderie? You see, the question that we're aiming at today is this one. Do my prayers matter? Like, is anything happening in the world because I prayed that wasn't going to happen otherwise? Or is anything not happening in the world because I prayed that would have happened otherwise? Do my prayers matter? The famed novelist Kurt Vonnegut offered his opinion. He he once wrote this. I don't think it at all likely that God requires the ill-informed and contradictory advice of us humans as to how to run the world. If he is all wise, as you say he is, doesn't he already know what is best? And if he is all good, won't he do it whether we pray or not? So as many of us who have a fire in our heart burning alongside Walter Wink, there's at least that many of us just shrugging our shoulders with Kurt Vonnegut. And so here is where our prayers actually live, paralyzed between wonder and mystery. History belongs to the intercessors. Yes, that is our God. And then we actually begin to pray. And all the confidence and inspiration we felt when we read a quote like that one is drowned out in a tsunami of questions, doubts, confusion, and past disappointments. And don't get me wrong, I mean, most of us continue praying in this space between wonder and mystery, but we don't pray the Jesus way. 
We pray the safest kind of way. The, the, the prayers that are, are so passive and vague that we wouldn't even really know if God answered them or not. We do those rhetorical gymnastics that we learn over time in the American church. We offer prayers to God that actually prevent him from ever disappointing us or ever surprising us. Just as a thought experiment, think of everything that you've prayed for in the last week. If God said a miraculous and immediate yes to everything you've asked for, what would happen? What would happen in you? What would happen in this church? What would happen in our city? Save one or two particularly bold or naive people, the answer is usually very little. And that's because there's this place between wonder and mystery that paralyzes us. Jesus' disciples once asked him, teach us to pray. That's the basis for our current teaching series and practice. So if you would, return with me to Matthew chapter 6, where Lumen was reading for us just a moment ago. Did, did we pass out Bibles? Let's pass out some Bibles. You're going to need them today, full disclosure. It's going to be a bit of a sword drill up in here, if you know what I'm saying. Actually, I've never participated in a sword drill. That was not a part of my upbringing, but I've heard of its fame from the homeschoolers among us. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So if you would, look, look on with me in Matthew chapter 6. If you do not have a Bible but would like one, raise your hand and one will be passed to you. This is our gift to you. So if you would like it, just keep it. Take it home. It's yours. Now read along with me, Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, beautiful, one God and Father over the whole world, we love that. He goes on, hallowed be your name. Ugh, touch resistant on that one, because it does make God seem sort of like a cosmic narcissist. But I guess if he's that loving and that powerful, he's earned a touch of hallowing so we can get there, right? Let's keep going. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's where he loses us. A prayer is a way to meditate and let go? Definitely. Prayer is a centering exercise? Essential. Prayer is a channel by which we're reformed from the inside out? Absolutely. Prayer that really works. I mean the kind of prayer that joins God in bringing about redemption and pushing back the darkness. Prayer that makes an actual difference in the visible, tangible world that we inhabit and the relationships with other people that we hold within this world. The sort of prayer that brings heaven to earth. Here is where our opinions splinter in all sorts of different directions. This is where he loses us. And Jesus did everything he could to make sure that he did not lose us there. Let me just give you a few quotes directly from the lips of Jesus on the subject of prayer. This list is not exhaustive, it's just exemplary. Ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. That's Luke 11. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Mark 11. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. John 14, the very next chapter. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Back to Matthew's gospel. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer and then in the Sermon on the Mount. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? You see, if we really took the invitation seriously, 
If we really believed in prayer the way Jesus talked about it, we'd have the same problem as that Korean church. But we don't. Because we don't buy it. Not entirely, anyway. You see, it's true that prayer is both a wonder and a mystery, but I would argue that prayer is mostly a profound invitation. In fact, I believe that prayer is the most profound invitation God offers us in the whole of Scripture this side of grace. And prayer is not for the pious or the lucky, it is for all of us. And the on earth as it is in heaven kind of praying is technically called intercessory prayer. Now, biblically, the word intercession comes from the the Old Testament Hebrew, palga, and the New Testament Greek, entiuxis. The English word intercession, we get from the Latin intercedo, which means to come between. In both the ancient and the modern expressions of this concept, intercede literally means to pass between, to go between two parties, or to mediate. In layman's terms, intercessory prayer means to pray for somebody else. And the motive behind all true intercessory prayer is love for the other. Jesus was not describing some kind of real life make a wish situation where you discover a lamp and if you rub it just right, the genie gives you what you want. He's talking about the kind of prayers that start with love for someone else and then end in inviting God's activity to partner with that love. So intercession is a willing and intentional choice to turn from the endless spiral into the self, my desires, my wants, my needs, my agenda, to the other. Your desires, your wants, your needs, your day today. To utter even a syllable of intercessory prayer is a profound act of compassion and love. This is why Marjorie Thompson says, when we intercede for others in prayer, we welcome them into our inmost sanctuary of compassion. Or Henry Nouwen, for a man of prayer is, in the final analysis, the man who is able to recognize in the other the face of the Messiah and make visible what was hidden make touchable what was unreachable. Richard Foster's definition is my favorite. If we truly love people, we will desire for them far more than is within our power to give them, and this will lead us to prayer. Intercession is a way of loving others. Intercessory prayer is a selfless prayer, even a self-giving prayer. In the ongoing work of the kingdom of God, nothing is more important than intercessory prayer. To see this invitation, to regain movement from the paralyzed place that so many of our prayer lives get stuck, we need to go all the way back to the beginning to understand God's original plan when it comes to prayer. So I'm going to give you the story of the scriptures in four episodes, creation, fall, promise, Jesus. So if you would, open with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter one. That's page one, if you're looking for where to start. That's where we'll begin, and then get ready to flip to the right, because we're gonna trace this theme from beginning to end. So episode one, creation, the life God intended. Now all the way back on the Bible's opening page, at the very beginning of the world, God created Adam. And the English name Adam in Hebrew literally translates as person or human. So where you and I go on to read man or mankind in the English translation of the Hebrew text, we're often reading the Hebrew word Adam, which is translated as the personal name Adam in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. In fact, 
the Hebrew word Adam is spelled exactly like Adam, the English name, is spelled in our language. So the claim found on page one of the Bible, uh, as summed up in the first name of history's first person, is this. This isn't just the story of God and one guy named Adam. This is the story of all of us. This is every individual story. And the great existential question that has plagued every philosopher all the way back through recorded history goes something like this. Why are we here? Or to state that theistically, why were you created? Genesis offers a surprisingly direct answer to that great existential question. This is Genesis 1, verse 26. Read along with me. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over all the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So why were you created? The Genesis answer is to rule. And this isn't a power-hungry, manipulative sort of rule. It's an imago Dei, an image of God kind of authority, ruling the earth as a direct revelation or reflection of God's loving Trinitarian character. The same language that is used for all of humanity in the opening of Genesis was used in other Hebrew literature only in relation to kings and queens. Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs says, in the ancient world, it was rulers, emperors, and pharaohs who were held to be in the image of God. So what Genesis was saying was that we are all royalty. Human beings were made to be intercessors, participating with God in lovingly overseeing the world. God made Adam and Eve his managers here on earth, to put it into terminology we're more familiar with today. They were God's intercessors who were trusted to call the shots. Psalm 115 puts this most bluntly. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to mankind. Now, it's important to understand the meaning of this given. God did not completely forfeit the earth to people, then dust off his divine hands and get on to the next project. God maintained and maintains sovereignty and ultimate governing authority over the activities of his own creation. But God did and does share the responsibility of ruling that creation with people. Or to say it biblically, God made us intercessors. God created you and I in his image and then he gave us a creation to manage. This place that we inhabit was our assignment to spread his image over every square inch. Episode two, fall, the life we actually live. Now, if you're paying attention at all, you should be asking, where did it go so horribly wrong? Because if God's plan was for his people to rule his creation as his image bearers, we're honestly doing a subpar job, and that's putting it politely. And the environment's falling apart to the the effect that scientists are putting an end date on when this planet can support human life. Natural resources are being pillaged from the nations that that need the most and then overconsumed by the nations that already have plenty of them. Half the world's dying of starvation while the other half dies of obesity. So so the obvious question that we need to ask at the end of Genesis 2 is, where did God's intention for creation go wrong? And scripture makes the claim that all of this dysfunction is the result of a great deception, that somewhere along the way, you and I lost who we are. We forfeited our role as God's intercessors, co-managing his creation. And that story is a familiar one. Satan, appearing as a serpent, tempts Adam and Eve. 
In Genesis 1, Adam and Eve were empowered to rule and reign over God's creation, over all the wild animals. And in Genesis 3, a wild animal rules and reigns over them. So the intercessor role that you and I were given in Genesis 1 was then usurped by Satan in Genesis 3. They believed his deception, they acted on that deception, and then pain and suffering entered our world. And with that, the line of communication between God and people was fractured. The intercessor role that God created you and I for was lost to a spiritual enemy through deception, resulting in our paralyzation. It's a little bit like this. Uh, A few years ago, one of my friends got into a motorbike accident that left him with a severe brain injury. He was on vacation just outside of Nashville, and he had scouted the scenic spot that he was going to take a motorbike ride to early in the morning and then catch the sunrise on time lapse. But another driver found him later that morning with his motorbike turned over on the side of the road and his body splayed out a good distance away. He was life-flighted in a helicopter to the hospital in what seemed like it would be a futile attempt to save his life. Several days later, he miraculously opened his eyes and awoke, but he did so with severe damage to his brain. And for months afterwards, my friend Russell lived in a rehab facility trying to retrain the damaged part of his brain, which was connected to his motor skills. So all of his brain activity was working just fine, but you could not tell that by looking at him. The simplest unconscious thought would pass through his mind, like move your right hand, but his right hand would just stay right there, just glued to the thigh next to him. And the damage, put into terms I could understand, went like this. Somewhere between Russell's head and his hand, there's a communication breach. He still has all the intellectual capacity of a gifted, creative, young professional in his late 20s, but then on my first visit to see him, he's having to be fed ice chips by a nurse by hand because there was a break in the communication line between his mind and his body. And I can still see the look that was on Russell's face as he stared at me while that woman was slipping ice chips in a latex-gloved hand in between his teeth. His eyes wide. It looked as if he, was, he had terror inside of him because Russell was trapped inside a body that did not work. He could think and want, but his action was paralyzed. All the power was still there, but the line of communication between intention and action had been broken. So I sat there looking at him with just as much intensity, though instead of terror, my eyes were filled with tears. I wanted so badly to free my friend, but this was a lock that I could not pick because the imprisonment was inside of him. You see, that's something like the condition that we are left in after Genesis 3. We are trapped in a communication breach. God created an inseparable connection between his mind and our uh, body or our action. We are called his body here on the earth later in scripture. Uh, We're Christ's body, but the line of communication has been broken by the fall. So we look around the world and we see dysfunction surrounding us everywhere, suffering, pain, injustice, oppression, but we lack the ability to set the world right, to rule in the language of Genesis, because somewhere between God's mind and our action, the signals are cut off. We still carry the authority of a perfect, loving God. It's all still there, but we're paralyzed in a communication breach, and the imprisonment is inside of us. This brings us to episode three, promise the living victory. If you would turn ahead with me to Genesis chapter three, I'm gonna pick up now in verse 15. And if you're getting nervous about how long we're gonna be here since we're only three chapters into this thing and I said we're tracing from beginning to end, relax. I'm gonna pick up the pace significantly from here, okay? 
Genesis 3.15, this is God speaking to Satan. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, head is biblical imagery for intercessor or manager. God's very first promise spoken immediately after our authority was lost was this. Through human offspring, I will send one to recover your intended role. The very first promise in the whole of scripture is, I will make you intercessors again. The prophet Isaiah foretold the birth of the coming Messiah this way. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. God is coming as one of us. The author is writing himself into the story. To us a child is born. That is a showstopper on Christmas Eve by candlelight. But it's more than just that. The government will be on his shoulders. That is authority language. It's Genesis language. A fitting restatement of Isaiah's promise is he's coming to win back the role you lost to repair the communication breach because it's a promise that's about rule. Jesus is the living fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy and he goes on to say himself in John chapter 12, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So why were you and I created? To rule. What does Jesus call Satan? Ruler. Genesis language. And what does Jesus promise to win your rule back? That's the Genesis promise. At the close of the Gospels, after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he sums up his whole victory in the famous words, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. God won your authority back. He restored the position for which you and I were created at first. He stepped into the tension you feel all the time based on this communication breach and he mended what had been broken. He made us intercessors again. Yeah. Now turn all the way forward to John chapter 16. This brings us to the final episode, Jesus, the restoration of prayer. Get there with me. John chapter 16, you're gonna wanna see this because if you're still with me, and look, I'm painfully aware that we've been getting quite dense here, so I might have lost some of you along the way, but if you're still with me, you should be asking, look, all that's great, man. But what does any of that have to do with prayer? I'm so glad you asked because it all gets cleared up by the most confusing thing Jesus ever said. And it's in John chapter 16, on the final night of his life, in a candid moment with his disciples, Jesus said this, I'm gonna pick up in verse seven. Very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus is essentially saying, it's not you, it's me. I'm no good for you. You're better off without me. It's it's the classic breakup speech. (laughs) Jesus is telling them with a straight face, I'm leaving, and that's gonna make it so much better. It sounds like a breakup speech, but it is anything from, or the furthest thing from a breakup speech. Jesus is talking about prayer. In the same breath, he goes on to explain. Jump down with me to verse 23 now of John 16. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Jesus is unmistakably explaining, you have gotten used to bringing your requests, your needs, your questions, and your complaints to me in person, but soon, when I go, you will go directly to the Father. 
just as you've seen me do. He's talking about prayer. Prayer is the pathway he has made for us to get back to God's original plan. Prayer is the way we can rule, manage, and intercede for this world. Prayer is the repair of the communication breach that paralyzed us in the first place. Philip Yancey comments on this, of all the means God could have used, prayer seems the weakest, slipperiest, easiest to ignore. So it is. Unless Jesus was right in that most baffling claim, He went away for our sakes as a form of power sharing to invite us into direct communion with God and to give us a crucial role in the struggle against the forces of evil. God has shared his power with you. He calls you a co-manager of heaven walking around here on earth. Prayer is how that moves from a biblical theory to your actual experience. Jesus is very plainly telling his disciples, until now you've never really prayed. Not like I designed it, but when I go to the Father, you'll discover prayer in my name. And that ancient phrase, in my name, it it equally translates under my authority. So to pray in Jesus' name is to pray with recovered authority. The authority we were created to carry, lost, he's won back on our behalf. In Jesus' name was never just meant to be the fitting tagline on the prayers of experienced Christians. It is the exercise of Jesus' victory. To pray is to experience the same access to the Father that Jesus himself had. The theologian Larry Hurtado says to pray in Jesus' name means that we enter into Jesus' status in God's favor and invoke Jesus' standing with God. You're not Jesus. But every time you pray, if you're a follower of Jesus, you come to the Father clothed in the robe and crown of a ruler. In the eyes of heaven, you are filled with Jesus' standing and his status. One way to say it is this, when God won your authority back, God was winning prayer back. Karl Barth says to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprise against the disorder of the world. So prayer is the means by which we push back the curse that's infected the whole world and infected us. John Wimber says prayer is meeting the needs of others on the basis of God's resources. So prayer is heaven's highest security clearance. It is free access to stroll directly into the heavenly vault, gather up everything you can carry, and then go back into the world distributing heavenly resources. To pray, to intercede, is literally to say, oh, we've missed a spot here, and we're gonna need some heaven on earth here, and there's brokenness there. It is the distribution of the resources of heaven in this world among coworkers and roommates and neighbors and strangers and in high-rises and housing projects and homeless shelters and prisons. Bringing heaven to earth. That, my friends, is prayer. Intercessory prayer simultaneously restores our God-given identity that was lost in the fall, and it is the experience of restoring the whole of creation. All of that being true, and it absolutely is, the worst-kept secret in church history is that most of us, even most Christians, don't really like prayer. I mean, we do it because we know it's good for us. So prayer is the spiritual equivalent of a shot of wheatgrass. 
You know, it's like, I got to get these nutrients in me somehow. So this is going to hurt going down, but let's do it, baby. It's, it's that. But what if, according to Jesus, you've never really prayed? Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. What if you've never come before the Father wearing the robes of the air, carrying the status and standing of the Son? What if you've never plundered the riches of the heavenly vault? What if you've never pushed back the curse alongside God? The victory's already been won. He's just looking for some intercessors to implement the experience of that victory here and now. Hold on, that's prayer? I could wake up a few minutes earlier for that. I could use my lunch hour differently for that. I could even see myself skipping a meal or two for that. And here's the best part of the whole story. Here's the bit that really blows my mind. God does not need intercessors managing his creation. He is not overwhelmed by the responsibility of overseeing the world. He's all-knowing, all-powerful, and completely outside of time. He's got this. God chooses intercessors. Except in the most extraordinary cases, God is so loving that he has willingly limited his power so that he might share in redemption with ordinary people like you and me. I wonder how much God is longing to do in our world and he's just waiting on you, a co-manager in his household, to ask him. You see, we dream of a God who brings heaven to earth. God dreams of praying people to share heaven with. P.T. Forsyth went so far as to call our prayers the answer to God's. So again, I'll just pose the simplest question. If God gave you everything you've asked for in the last week, what would happen? And the only reason I ask that is because you are a co-heir with Christ. You are a manager of heavenly resources. What are you doing with all that authority? You see, if we really took Jesus seriously on the invitation to prayer, what would happen? What would happen in you? What would happen in us? What would happen in our city? What would happen in your workplace? What would happen in our world? Isn't it worth finding out? Yes. Prayer is more practice than theory. As we so often say around here, if you want the life of Jesus, you've gotta take on the lifestyle of Jesus. And that's because true theory is powerless until it's practiced. So when the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray, it wasn't because they'd never prayed. They were first century Jews who ordered their entire lives around morning, midday, and evening prayers at the temple. They were as dedicated and practiced in prayer as anyone you've ever met. They didn't ask because they'd never prayed. They asked because they saw something in Jesus' way of prayer that was more intimate, more powerful, and more true than their own. When the disciples asked, teach us to pray, the implication is, the question behind the question is, teach us to pray like that, like the way you're doing it. They were asking to take on Jesus' lifestyle in prayer that they might know his life. So is there a practice for this Jesus way of intercessory prayer? Yes. But this practice is less like a few notes or a method, and it's more like a stake in the ground for us as a community. For the month of February, we are starting a prayer room. 24 hours, seven days a week, for an entire month, we're going to pray. That is 672 hours of continuous prayer. That's the vision. 
And reserving one of those hours for yourself or a group of people is easier than booking a table at a restaurant. Everything's live on our, on our website right now for you to do it. But I wanna give you the why behind that practice. It's because I've got this dream for our church here in Portland that we would become a people of prayer. A, a people who put prayer both at the center of our individual lives and the center of our shared communal life. A people who inherit supernatural stories, who live biblical lives because we live as intercessors. I walk around the streets of this city all the time asking God for a tiny little room where prayer never ever stops. A, a room where uh, every hour there's someone in the ear of God thanking him, praising him, listening to him and asking for his kingdom here. I daydream about a little bitty room covered in the written prayers of all of God's people. I daydream about a people who have never been alone with God for an hour before then discovering that they actually enjoy his company. And about people who carry shame finally slowing down long enough to be washed in his forgiveness. About people with subtle anger living in them, sitting still long enough to acknowledge it and to release that person they're holding captive by resentment. About a room that is so saturated in God's presence, where the space between heaven and earth has been worn so thin that, that people who are highly suspicious of organized religion and would never even think about being in a room where an altar call could happen, meeting Jesus alone in the quiet space of individual prayer to him. I dream about stories that reshape the expectations of sleepy, bored Christians uh, is so that our collective faith looks something like the early church whose lives and communal practice we're still studying. I dream about all the ways that our church would be changed forever just by a tiny little space where prayer, mission, and justice are allowed to collide. But it's not just the activity inside that room that I dream about. It's what happens when people walk out of the room. The Franciscan priest Brennan Manning says that the most exciting thing about a space dedicated to prayer is what happens when the person leaves the space. He writes this, what if the hour you spend in the prayer room is when you refocus on Jesus so that you carry his presence with you into the other 23 hours of the day with a heightened awareness that he is with you, he is for you, that he likes you, that he hears your thoughts. You start to pray in real time. You instinctively lift situations to the Lord in the actual moment you experience them. While you're watching that distressing news reporter, hearing about your friend's latest crisis, you're no longer deferring all your prayers to some later holier moment because your whole life is becoming that holier moment. See, the best way to pray without ceasing isn't to say a whole lot of prayers. It's to become your prayers. It's not just asking God's kingdom to come here or there. It is becoming the place where heaven touches earth. Yeah. The best reason for a place where prayer never, ever stops is that we would become people where prayer never, ever stops. That we would become walking, talking answers to prayer. See, I dream of a little room, just an ordinary room like any other that is filled with the collective prayers of a family so that it becomes a holy ground where we both rediscover the identity that he made us to carry at first and we become the very prayers that we pray. And I'm not the first person to have a dream like that. It has to be said that Bridgetown is not starting a prayer movement. We're joining a prayer movement. That God has placed watchmen on the walls of Portland. That there are Peter, people like Peter and Stephanie Quint who have been praying this in for more than 30 years. 
And there's communities in our city like Prayer PDX who have been helping churches link arm in intercession for going on four decades. And there are churches like New Song and Pastor Richard and Emmanuel Church with Bishop Wells and so many others who've been tilling up the soil in this city far longer than I've been alive. So this isn't about Bridgetown and it's definitely not about me. It's about joining God in the larger story that he is writing in our city. And I don't want to just tell you about it. I want you to see it. So will you just, will you humor me and just close your eyes and picture this with me for just a second. It's a Thursday night at 8 p.m. You're regretting signing up for a prayer slot because it's been a long week already and you just want takeout pad thai, red wine, and a couple episodes of that guilty pleasure. But in a moment of inspiration, you wrote your name down on a website, so here you are. And you walk into the church that you're used to seeing crowded and bustling on Sundays and it's completely empty except for a host who invites you to remove your shoes to step for an hour into this holy place. And you open the door of a prayer room where beautiful instrumental worship music is playing. And there's candles burning, they're electric for safety reasons, but they're convincing counterfeits. <laughs> the walls are covered in paper where people have scribbled prayers long before you, where there are pictures drawn and verses written and rum, humble, raw, passionate requests to God. In one corner, there's an old kneeler from a church. It must be 100 years old, knee spots worn from so many people who have kneeled there to pray to God before you have. In another corner, there's a small table with a cup of wine and some crackers. The crumbs are scattered all around because of all the people that have remembered they were forgiven in that room already today. And you pick up a packet that walks you through an hour of prayer step by step, different ways of talking to God, from silence to confession to releasing burdens to full-blown intercession. It's a guide for anyone and everyone regardless of level of experience. And then you begin to pray. And a chime sounds on your phone. That was an hour? It's already passed? That was so much faster than you thought. And you can't remember the last time you've spent an hour praying on a Thursday night. Come to think of it. Have you ever chosen just to spend an hour alone with Jesus on any evening? All right, you can come back now. That, 672 times. That's the vision. That's how prayer goes from a true but powerless theory to real life. And I'm not talking to you about a church program. I'm talking to you about a recovered identity. I'm talking to you about going from paralyzed between wonder and mystery to profound invitation. And I believe with all of my heart that people will begin conversations with God in that room, in this church, that will define your life for all the days following it. That there are some in this church right now that as grandparents will be telling their story with Jesus to their grandchildren and that room will be a key player in your story. I think that there's some people whose faith has been pummeled by disappointment and you will enter a room saturated by the collective faith of your brothers and sisters and there find the hope to recover the prayers that you laid down. And that there will be amazing stories we get to tell of miraculous answer to prayer outside the walls of this building based on words that are whispered to the Father in this building. Do you want to know if all of that is real or just some mixture of inspirational talk and religious theory? then don't just listen to me talk about prayer. Show up in God's presence and say like the disciples, teach us to pray. And then see what happens. 
So as our practice for intercession, I want to invite you, every last one of you, to sign up for at least one hour of personal prayer. At least one hour in the month of February where you are alone with Jesus, with the door closed for an hour. And I want to invite you to sign up for at least one hour where you're in there with your Bridgetown community. Where you get in that room together with the people that you walk with in following Jesus in this church and pray together. One hour of praying alone, one hour of praying together, that's the practice. And if you're feeling adventurous, go for somewhere between 1 and 4 a.m. Because I don't know what it is about the night watches, but that just seems to be where the best stories are always waiting. So I want to close with this. Whenever I get to know somebody outside the church, Christian, you can hang on for a minute. It's that rhetorical trick where I say I'm gonna close with this and I got about 30 minutes left. (laughs) I'll let you know. I'm just kidding, it's not gonna be 30 minutes, but I I wanna share a story with you. There's this weird thing that happens to you as a pastor where you're going about your ordinary life outside of the church and you get to know somebody new and they at some point say, so what do you do? And you tell them that you're a pastor and then it's always met with this unique combination of, of disappointment and intrigue. You know, like the, the initial reaction is like, oh, you seemed so normal. And, and like, huh, people still do that. And if we get to know each other well, if that doesn't completely scare this individual off, over the course of time, usually a few months later, the question will resurface and they'll say something like, so why did you become a pastor? But what they're really asking beneath that, what you can feel them asking is, did you grow up in some super weird, hyper-religious environment? Or do you come from a long line of people that just can't let go of a dying religious ideal? What happened to you, man? And for me, the honest answer to that question is prayer. Prayer happened to me. When I was 13 years old, I wasn't sure I was buying all this Jesus stuff. I was a curious kid, but I was not an easy sell. Look, if God's real, I want everything. But if he's not, I'd prefer to find out sooner than later so I don't have to spend so much time going to all these meetings and singing all these mediocre songs. It was that kind of thing. And then a mentor asked me a question that messed me up in the very best way. He said, what do you think God would do in your life and in your school if you you spent every day of this summer break walking around that school praying by name for every individual in your upcoming eighth grade class? I don't know. Why don't you find that out? And I liked that idea. So every day, all summer long, a 13-year-old kid walked a circle around his middle school with the class directory in hand, praying by name for every individual in my eighth grade class. I wanna show you a picture of that place. This dingy public middle school is the foundation of who I am. It is the place that God shaped me more profoundly than anywhere else. Because something started changing in me when I walked around that building praying by myself and fell in love with Jesus. I discovered that this relationship with him was the place that my true self was most drawn out. I discovered that I did not just need God, but I really, really liked him. And that God's not just found in the noise of worship gatherings and small groups and inspirational talks, but he is profoundly in the silence of individual conversation. He's in prayer. And so in eighth grade, following that summer, I came back for the next fall and I started a Christian outreach program at my public middle school. Not a great way to become more popular or get a date for the school dance, I can tell you that by experience. 
That group met at 6.30 a.m. on Wednesday mornings, convenient time, great start. You know, what middle schooler doesn't want to consider the meaning and origins of life before the sun comes up? <laughs> My entire strategy for leading this outreach was this. On Tuesday nights, I would open the Bible to a random location. I would pick out a paragraph, and then I would jot down a few thoughts about what I thought it meant and show up and explain that the following morning. How good a recipe for revival do you think that sounds like? I had one thing going for me though, I prayed. I would lead that group on Wednesdays and so on Tuesdays and Thursdays I'd go to school early at 6.30 to keep on praying through that class directory. It's a true story, my mom had to ask me to chill out with all the prayer because she was losing so much sleep taking me to school early every morning. <laughs> Couple months in, so many students were coming to that Christian outreach thing that we had to move from the math class from where we started into the school's theater. By the time we were halfway through the year, we were the largest extracurricular program of any kind in the school, and by the end of the year, a third of my eighth grade class had come into relationship with Jesus in the darkness of the early morning through the likely heretical sermons of a 13-year-old skeptic. <laughs> See, we dream of a God who brings heaven to earth. And God dreams of praying people to share heaven with. And I don't have any family in that town anymore. We've moved around too much and scattered quite a bit, but my in-laws do live just a half hour away. And I was at their house for the holidays a few years back, and I just started thinking, you know, I've not laid eyes on that building in 20 years. I'd like to go back. So I woke up early one morning and I timed my arrival for 6.30 a.m. just for old time's sake. And I remember getting to the intersection where I could see that building and I was waiting at a red light and I just began to weep in my mother-in-law's car because I was, I was looking at holy ground. And then I parked in the parking lot and I got out of the car and I stood in this little hidden place right there where I would sit with my back against that wall at 13 on Tuesday mornings and I would pray through that directory asking God to meet my friends. And then I walked over to the uh, little place, the patch in the sidewalk where I would sit on Thursday mornings and where I invited people to begin joining me and by the end of the year there was a whole prayer meeting happening in that little place. And I walked to the exact path that I had worn into the grass 20 plus years before as a kid. So to anyone else, that is just a public middle school in need of some, some version of renovation, but to me, that is holy ground. Because it's the place that God started something in me that has never stopped. It's the place that I discovered what Jesus was talking about when he said, pray in my name. So I walked that ground and I prayed with tears streaming down my face when I was there that morning in my 30s because something began to rise in me again. It was like my soul was waking up. The most ancient invitation that had awoken me as a kid was awakening me again as an adult and as a pastor. And I left and I realized that one visit was not gonna be enough for me. I had to go back. So then on New Year's Eve, I went out to dinner with my wife and after dessert, I was like, you know, babe, where would be a romantic spot to ring in the new year? Is that my public middle school that you didn't attend? So yes, it is awesome to be married to me. <laughs> and we hustled back to that middle school because I wanted to be there walking that circle in prayer when the clock turned to a new year. 
And I went back, not because I thought that if I did, that that God would then do what I wanted him to do, or because there's any kind of magic in lining up uh, God with our man-made calendars. It's because that's where I wanted to be. I wanted to be with the Father. And that night, you have to understand that I did not become any more his son. God did not love me more that night than he has on any other night, and God did not prefer my company that night to anyone who was out toasting champagne and ringing in the new year in a different way, but in a world that for the most part rejects him, ignores him, and chooses any distraction over him. Imagine how much it must minister to the heart of the Father just to say, I choose you over every other distraction. And prayer's about that. It's about being with the Father before it's about anything else. So don't talk about outcomes right now. It is a disservice to talk about prayer and lead with outcomes because prayer is about presence before it's about anything else. Prayer is about preferring the Father's presence and discovering that he prefers yours, that his compassion and desire to be with you so far outruns your own that the only word for being with him is home. See, prayer is about presence first and foremost, about being with the Father. So there I am walking around this old middle school, that familiar prayer circle that's come to define my life because what God started in me there as a 13-year-old kid has never stopped. And I still to this day spend the darkness of the early morning walking around in prayer with Jesus. And it is not a gritting my teeth, God, I'm doing my part, you owe me this man kind of prayer. It's the joy of my life. But that night in particular, as the clock was turning to a new year and I was walking that circle in prayer that symbolizes so much for me, I could barely get a prayer out through a trembling voice and tears streaming down my cheeks. And I just remember praying one thing over and over and over. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. What I saw you do in this place, this ordinary place among ordinary people, do it again. Do it in a new place among new people in a a new setting. Do it again, Lord. This time in Portland. So that little room in the basement of this church, anybody else, that thing's an oversized closet in an old church building. But to us, that's holy ground. Because that's the place that many of you are gonna meet God in a more personal way than you have up to this point. The way called prayer. And it's the place that some will utter the dangerous invitation, teach me to pray, and your soul will begin to wake up. And it's the place that many of us will discover, not from a sermon or someone else's story, but in the actual personal experience of our lives, that that his promises in prayer are for real, and they're for now, and they're for me. We dream of a God who brings heaven to earth. God dreams of praying people to share heaven with. So if we really took Jesus seriously in the invitation to prayer, seriously enough to put theory into practice, what would happen in you? What would happen in us? What would happen in our city? Why don't we find that out?